0: Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of Grace Point Church in Atlantic, Iowa. My name is Don McLean. I'm the senior pastor here at Grace Point. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can check us out at gracepointatlantic.com. And in the meantime, grab your Bible and check out this week's sermon.
1: Hebrews chapter 9, and we'll be reading the first 14 verses. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is the symbol for this present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with the food and drink and various washings and regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. for if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of the of the defiled persons with ashes of a heifer if those things sanctify for the purification of the flesh how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God purify our conscience from the dead works to serve the living God
0: it's good to be together on this labor day weekend we're glad you're here thank you for uh worshiping with us today whether you're a regular or you're visiting for the holiday weekend it's good to be in the house of the lord Uh, we are studying through hebrews together and uh, that's why we find ourselves this morning in hebrews chapter 9 and we'll be looking at the verses chad just read for us thank you so much so uh, let's let's pray and ask the lord's help there's some complexities there that we're going to do our best to unpack together let's pray lord thank you so much for giving us life and breath and strength to be here this morning we do not take that for granted we uh, we stirred in our from our sleep this morning because you uh, you gave us the breath of life and we thank you for that thank you for uh, for sound minds and uh, the desire to be in this place thank you for this church where we can worship together and we thank you for this text and we pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to understand and to receive to receive from you lord help help me to get out of the way so that. What we hear is is God's word through God's spirit. In Jesus' name we ask this, amen. I was thinking about rescue stories this week. Uh, Some rescue stories are tense. Have you ever noticed some some rescue stories are just really tense? If you followed any of the news coverage this week about that hurricane down in Florida, maybe you you saw some of these tense rescue stories. I was was looking at one uh, in a place called, uh, what was it, Hudson Beach, Hudson Beach, and these folks uh, didn't uh, get out like they were supposed to. They kind of figured the evacuation orders applied to other people. And so they stayed, and then the floodwaters came in. That storm surge was much higher than predicted in their particular place, and they were all trapped in their houses. And so uh, the firefighters and the rescuers had to go in and get them. And there was a lot of tension. I watched this interview with this police. Our fire chief was like, oh, we're not sure we're going to be able to get them. You know, but, but then they got them. But there was this tension in, in that rescue story. Uh, other rescue stories can be a, a little more fun. Uh, I saw one this week from Idaho, story out of Idaho. Uh, it was about uh, it happened in Boise, and I guess there was a fire, like a kitchen fire in somebody's apartment. There was this com- uh, apartment complex in Boise, Idaho and uh, somebody saw some smoke coming out through a window, and they called the 911, and the firefighters got there right away. So they ended up kind of containing the fire. It wasn't a terrible disaster. But they got there, and there's smoke coming out from the door. So they're banging on the door. Who is anybody home? And nobody's answering. So they break down the door, they go into this apartment, and and there's no people there, the the people were all gone, but there were actually two dogs. There were two dogs in this apartment. And uh, the dogs had actually lost consciousness because of the smoke, and so the firefighters got the dogs out right away, they resuscitated the dogs, so don't worry, no dogs were harmed in the making of this illustration. Uh, the dogs were fine, and, uh, and they got the fire out, so it was all okay. But, but the funny part was when they investigated what made this happen, it, it turned out it was the dogs. The dogs had actually started the fire. Uh, apparently one of them, I don't know how they reconstructed this, but apparently one of the dogs had climbed up onto the stove. Maybe he was looking for bacon or something, I don't know. And, and uh, in pawing around up there in the stove, the dog had actually turned on two of the burners and didn't know how to turn them off again. And, and so it ended up kind of starting this fire on the, on the stovetop and all this smoke and all the rest of it. So, so the dog, talk about a bad dog, right? B- bad dog. Uh, by the way, if anybody needs to go home and make sure your own dog is not burning down the house, I, that's, I, that's the kind of thing our dog might have done. Here's the thing about rescue stories. Here's the thing about rescue stories. Whether they're tense or funny or somewhere in between, the good ones always end with a rescue. Right, If those dogs didn't survive that, that would not be a good story. I wouldn't have told you if the dogs didn't make it. And the same thing with the folks down in Hudson Beach. Uh, they got them out. That's what makes it a good rescue story. And that's why the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is the best rescue story of all. Because it works. God gets us out. Uh, This morning we're going to look at, uh, as my title suggests, the better redemption, the better redemption that we have in Jesus Christ. Uh, If you are visiting today, uh, this passage is part of a larger section here in Hebrews, and it stretches from chapter 7 to the middle of chapter 10. It's a larger section, and it's taking us through why... Jesus is better, basically. And so we're looking at these different things that are better about the ministry of Jesus. So in chapter 7, we talked about the better priesthood of Jesus. And then in chapter 8, we talked about the better covenant of Jesus. Now as we get into chapter 9, we focus on the better redemption of Jesus. Uh, When we trust in Christ, we gain access through him to a better Redemption. And when I say better, you the word better always implies a comparison, and yes, there's a comparison here. What's it better than? It's better than the old covenant, right? The redemption that God made available to human beings through the old covenant, the redemption we have through Jesus is better. So that's what we have in the new covenant, a better redemption. And this is uh, yet another reason that Jesus is worth any sacrifice. And I'll remind you, that I think is is the theme of of this middle section of the book for sure, right? And really, in some ways, you could argue the whole book is all about encouraging Christians to hold on. Don't let go of your faith. Persevere. Have an enduring courage, as the title of the whole series says. Hold on to Jesus, even when following Jesus gets hard. Because sometimes it does get hard hard. And so this book is all about equipping us to to hang on to Jesus. And that's what this middle section is about. The author is giving us, by showing us these things that are better, he's giving us a series of reasons that Jesus is worth any sacrifice. And the one we have this morning that I want to focus on is that Jesus is worth any sacrifice because he rescues us. He rescues us from the power of sin. He rescues us. And that's really what the word redeem means, right? We're talking about redemption this morning, the better redemption. The word will come up in that paragraph 11 through 14. Uh, The word redeem means to rescue. If you get down to the root of the word in Greek, it means to rescue someone, usually by making a payment. It almost always, especially in a biblical context, involves making a payment or a ransom. In fact, sometimes biblical uh, translations will just use the word ransom. Uh, alongside of the word redeem. And, and so to redeem someone, biblically speaking, to redeem someone, in, in a more general way, to redeem someone is to buy them out, right? to buy, to purchase a person's freedom. In the biblical context, it is to rescue, or, uh, to rescue someone by ransoming them, ransoming them or purchasing them from whatever they're enslaved to. And, and according to Hebrews, that's what Jesus did for us. That's what Jesus did for us. He, he redeemed us, he rescued us, from sin. And what price did he pay? What's the ransom? Uh, the ransom was himself. It, it was his own blood. And we'll dig more. That actually becomes more to the fore in the next couple of chapters here. But, but he redeemed us with his own blood. So we're going to explore that idea today, this idea of, of his rescue. And I want to do it by asking two questions of this text. Uh, and they're both printed for you on the outline if you like to follow along with outlines. The first question is why? Why is the redemption of Jesus so much better than that which was offered under the Old Covenant. And then the second question is how. We'll kind of dig down on the specifics. So how is the redemption of Jesus better? We're going to answer those two questions, and then we'll celebrate all of it together by sharing in the Lord's Supper together. So let's uh, let's get into this text, text with our questions. Question number one, why? Why is the redemption of Jesus better than the redemption under the Old Covenant? Why is it better? And the answer, I'm going to put up a few words here, the answer is that old covenant so this first part focuses mostly on the deficits of the old covenant all right i'll tell you that Uh, the old covenant redemption was based on temporary symbolism this is why the one under jesus is better the old covenant was based on temporary symbolism while new covenant redemption is grounded in heavenly reality old covenant redemption temporary symbols new covenant redemption heavenly reality And that's what verses 1 through 10 uh, gets us into, especially the symbolism part. Most of the focus in these 10 verses is on the first part there, the temporary symbolism. So uh, let's uh, look at the text. So now even the first covenant, he says, so beginning of the chapter, now even the first covenant had regulations uh, for worship and an earthly place of holiness. I want to just stop there because I think that word is really key. Uh, verse 1 picks up where chapter 8 left off. We were talking about two covenants at the end of, of chapter 8. So you got the new one that we have in Jesus, and you got the old one that we had under, and that was the, the old one. He calls it the first covenant here in verse 1. This is the law, uh, this is the Mosaic covenant, the covenant God made with the Israelites at Mount Sinai. Those are all talking about the same thing Mosaic covenant, old covenant, first covenant here in Hebrews. It's all talking about the same thing it's the law, it's the old covenant. So he's, he wants, he's, he's, just, he's been talk, taking us back and forth between the two covenants. Now he's going to focus in on something that comes from both covenants, and it's redemption. That's what our attention turns to here. And he tells us something about the first one. He says the first one was temporary. It was temporary. Why was it temporary? Because it was earthly. It's, it's earthly. He says so in verse 1. There were regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. And, and the whole thing was, was earthly. And this is what he's going to describe for us as we read into it. The, the whole thing, it, it was here. It existed on earth. You could touch it. You could see it, uh, which means it's temporary. Why? Because everything on earth is temporary. Everything. We know it, right? It all wears out. It all wears out. And, and you see that with the tabernacle. If you read in the Old Testament, the tabernacle wore out. We don't, it's not around anymore. It wore out. The temple, which replaced the tabernacle under King David and King Solomon, the temple also wore out, right? They had to repair that thing. Over the centuries, it got run down, and, and, and eventually it was just torn to the ground, just razed to the ground by, by Israel's enemies. And so even something as, as august and as beautiful as the temple, it was, it was ultimately temporary. And the, the, the point here he's going to make for us is that that's the case with the old covenant because those stand in for those are the manifestations of the old covenant and so he's telling us that whole thing that earthly uh, place of holiness tells us that the whole package is temporary the whole thing is temporary and it's also symbolic right so you got the temporary part now let's look at the symbolic part all of these expressions he's going to tell us were symbolic They were all symbols. And this is what you get if you look in your your text there, verses 2 through 5. He's going to walk us through these. I'm not going to read them again for time's sake. Chad did a wonderful job reading them for us. But just look at verses 2 through 5. What those verses do is they summarize large sections of the Old Testament. There are many chapters that are summarized here in these four verses. Uh, Especially uh, like the last third or so, of maybe even the last half of, of Exodus. Uh, as well as some past chapters from Leviticus and some other places too. And, and he just summarizes all this, doesn't go into any details, but he does kind of sketch it for us, right, to kind of refresh our memories. I'm going to put a little uh, picture up here to to help us picture what he's describing. We'll just use this picture to walk through it. So what you have in verses 2 through 5, if you don't recognize it, it's a description of the Old Testament uh, tabernacle right so the the covenant the under the old covenant, the covenant of Moses, there was this tabernacle that God instructed them to build in the wilderness, and uh, as you can see in this picture either side here uh, there were th- there 's three sections, usually the bible's going to talk about it in three sections you have uh, the, the outer court, which is this whole larger triangle, that's one section. And then you've got this inner, looks to us like a rectangle, right? Um, but that has two sections. So you've got an outer room, the main entrance is here, you've got an outer room, and then an inner room. So you've got three sections, outer court, inner room, out, outer room, and then inner room, okay? We're going to look at those uh, in, in, in passing here. Uh, first of all, the outer court, he doesn't say anything, Author of Hebrews is not going to take any time at all with the outer court, even though you remember from reading in the Old Testament, there's a lot in there about the outer court. Uh, Author of Hebrews says, we're not going to talk about that. And so uh, he he zooms us in on this part, the two rooms. Uh, The first room, uh, I think the ESV calls it section, the first section, uh, but the first room, the outer room, had some furniture in it. He doesn't tell us anything about what it was made of. He doesn't go any of those things. He just tells us about the furniture. Uh, There was a lampstand, he says, and that lampstand, we read in other places, symbolizes God's truth. And then there was also a table that's on the the north side of the the building, that table of showbread it's called. Uh, There were 12 loaves of bread on that table, one for each tribe of Israel that was swapped out every every week, and the bread uh, symbolized God's provision for his people. And so you've got, the, you got these two pieces of furniture, the lampstand, the showbread. That, place, that was called the holy place. That's how it's labeled. And then there is this inner room, the holy of holies, uh, and, or some uh, holy play, most holy place or holy of holies it's called. Uh, there was actually a curtain. That's what that red squiggle is. That represents a, a curtain, so it was separated. You couldn't go into that middle one without the inner one without going past that curtain. And according to Hebrews, our text tells us there were two pieces of furniture there. Right? There's two pieces of furniture. There's a golden altar of incense, and there's an Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Covenant. Now you're looking at my picture here, and you're like, wait a minute, <laughs> I can count. There, there's only one piece of furniture in the inner room. The altar of incense is in the outer room. So if you read carefully, and you're like, well, wait a minute, is, is he wrong? Did he forget what's going on here? Uh, and so I had to kind of pause and explain why he says it this way, um, because it's true, if you read in Exodus, this diagram is is what Exodus says. The altar of incense was technically in the outer room, but he's not going on technical. The author is actually grouping these things thematically, and that's why you've got what you've got here in uh, here in hebrews. Um, he's putting He's putting the altar of incense with the Ark of the Covenant because he's grouping them thematically. When the high priest would go to enter this room he had to go past this and he had to do something here. He had to offer incense on that altar of incense and then he would go in there. And this was viewed, by the first century, this was viewed as the preparation for this. And so thematically, so in terms of location, it was in the outer room, but it belonged to the inner room. All right, so that's, that's why that little detail is there. If that troubles anybody, why is it put that way? The altar of incense goes with the Holy of Holies. So you've got the altar of incense, represents the prayers of God's people. And then you've got that ark inside, inside the inner room is the ark of the covenant. He actually says the most. Our author says more about that one than he does the other stuff. It's covered with gold inside and out. He tells us what's inside of it. There's three things inside of it. A jar with manna from the desert which is pretty cool. Uh, Original manna, there's the staff of Aaron, and then there's the table, the tables of the covenant, the actual stones on which God wrote the Ten Commandments. That's what was kept inside of that ark. It was basically a box, a gold box that was hollow inside, and then there was a cover, a lid, uh, and that lid had these angels, these statues of angels, which he describes. They're the cherubim. Uh, The cherubim looked at each other and then down on the top of the ark which was called the mercy seat he doesn't go into that here but the mercy seat is where the priest would put the blood so once a year the high priest would come into this this room all by himself and he would pour the blood from the animal sacrifice onto that mercy seat and that was to atone for the sins of himself and then also the sins of of god's people we could say a whole lot more about all of this. I know some of you love this stuff and have studied it in depth. I've, I've heard of people writing whole books on this. There's all kinds of things we could say about this. And it would be fun to go into all of it, but we're actually gonna take our cue from the author. The author says, of these things we cannot speak. I love that, it gives me such an out. Uh, he says, of these things we cannot now speak in detail. It's the end of verse five, right? It would be interesting. It would be a very productive study to go into it. But the author, it's it's. It, it's like the author wants us to move us all along. He says, we need to move on. We have other things to talk about. And what he wants to talk about is this point right here. right, so I wanted to spend time with the text and show you that stuff. But he's very quickly moving us onto this point. All of that stuff that the Bible describes, the Old Testament describes at great length in the inspired word of God, it was all intentionally symbolic. They were temporary symbols of heavenly realities. He's going to tell us that in verse 9. Uh, in verse 9, he calls the whole package a symbol. He says they were symbolic for the present age. It's beginning of verse 9. They were symbolic for the present age. That is, they were symbols for us, for those of us who live under the new covenant, for those who, love, who live in the Christian era until Jesus comes back. It was all symbols for us, the author says. Uh, let's keep reading, and he'll, he'll tell us a little more about uh, what it symbolized. Because what he's going to focus on are the deficits. And it would be a very interesting study, like I say, to focus on all the positive stuff about the covenant and the the tabernacle, because there's lots of very rich theology there. But the author of Hebrews isn't interested in any of it. He's actually going to show us two shortfalls, two deficits of the old covenant. And and, uh, they're described in verses 6 and 7. So he says, These preparations, everything he just described, having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, room 1 performing their ritual duties but into the second only the high priest goes and he but once a year and not without taking blood which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. we'll stop there now we get to it now we get to the reason the redemption under Jesus is better and, and it's better because ultimately ultimately the redemption under the old covenant was inadequate fell short in two ways. The first way has to do with separation. Separation. If you want a word to write down or a word to remember, the the first covenant fell short because separation was wired into the whole thing. Uh, It wasn't about access, at least especially the way the author of Hebrews is going to focus on it. He says it wasn't about access, it was about separation. That's what the symbols were all about. Uh, Verse 6, the priests would go regularly into the first room. The priests would go regularly into the first room and perform their duties. Do you know what that means? It means that the rest of us didn't. All the other people didn't. Regular people like you and me couldn't even go into the outside room. Only the priests went in there. Everyone else had to kind of you know, wait outside. They would go to the, the altar where they would bring their own animal. That was in the outer court. They could go there. And then they had to hand it over to the priest and they had to just kind of wait outside and say, I hope it works. I hope something's, you know, I wonder what's happening inside, right? They, they, they didn't know. You know, I was thinking this week, it had never occurred to me before, but I'll bet Jesus never went inside the temple. Think about the Gospels. When you read through the Gospels, we often read about Jesus going to, to the temple. And you say, oh, well, of course he went to the temple. That's where all the action was. But he only ever went to the temple courts. Even Jesus He's God, and even Jesus couldn't go into even that inner room. Why? Because he's not a priest. The authors told us that a whole bunch of times. Jesus was of the tribe of Judah, not the tribe of Levi. And so even Jesus wasn't qualified under all of that symbolism of the Old Covenant. Even Jesus couldn't go into the actual temple. He wasn't allowed. And then the inner room, that holy of holies, that most holy place, that one was even worse, right? And that's what verse 7 says, and and we've talked about this. It came up in, in earlier chapters, but only the high priest... Only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies. And even for him, it was all very strictly controlled when and under what circumstances. Um, he, he could only go in once a year, which this tells us. He actually, uh, it's not in this text, but it's in you know, like Leviticus and Exodus. He had to spend a whole week getting ready all these purification rituals he had to do leading up to that one day a year when he would go in there all this preparation he had to do when he did finally go in he dare not go without a sacrifice of blood he didn't just kind of walk in there and kind of hey how's everything going in this room just checking things out no he, he could not go in that room without the sacrifice of blood first for his own sins and then for the sins of, of the people. And so it was all very strictly controlled, even for the guy who did go in there. And, and the, what Hebrews picks up on is that it is the separation piece. Now, it's astonishing from, if I was teaching through Exodus, I would be pointing out to you right now how amazingly gracious it is that God gave them any access at all. But the author of Hebrews isn't concerned about that. He wants to get us to Jesus. And so he's showing how the Old Covenant, it was all about separation Only this one guy could go in, and even him under the strictest, strictest of of circumstances. And then that leads to the other way uh, the Old old Covenant fell short, and it has to do with the word limitation. There were just all these limitations, so many limitations. Let's keep reading. I want to read uh, 8 through 10 here. So pick it up in verse 8. Uh, By this, uh, the holy, and this is a reference to... um, but really the whole thing, the, 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 everything he's describing, how the old, co- old covenant worked. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened, as long as the first section, and section here doesn't apply to the inner room anymore, it applies to the whole covenant, the, first, the, the whole tabernacle. It doesn't, the, the way to the holy places is not opened while it's still standing. Verse 9, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but they deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. There were a bunch of limitations, limitations. Uh, The first one was the one we just talked about, access, right? Verse eight, there was no way open to the Lord while the first covenant was still operating. It, it It was closed. Humans could not draw near while that covenant was still enforced. That's what verse 8 means. Uh, another limitation was the repetition, right? Was, the animal sacrifices had to be done again and again and again. That was a limitation. Uh, it didn't stick, which leads to the next one. They were not effective. Because of the requirement for repetition, uh, they were ultimately not effective for dealing with the real problem. He emphasizes this in verses 9 and 10. The gifts and sacrifices that were offered under that arrangement, the old covenant, could not perfect or cleanse, make complete, could not perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Uh, the, the, the point there is that they couldn't deal with the inside. The, the, all those Old Testament sacrifices couldn't fix the problem on the inside, and that's where the problem is. Won't Jesus stress that so many times in the Gospels? That's where the problem is. Sin doesn't come from touching a dirty bowl. Sin comes from the stuff that's inside of us because of, of our fallen nature going all the way back to Genesis. No, all those sacrifices could deal, it was, it was all ritual, right? It was all outside, it was all symbolic, it was all cleaning on the outside, but they did not have the ability to perfect the conscience, the, the inside part. Those, those things couldn't touch that. We needed something else to, to deal with that. And so there was this limitation, it was not effective, it separated. Lots of problems there. And so that's the answer to question number one. The new covenant of Jesus is better than the old one, because the old one fell short. The old one was, was ultimately based on temporary symbolism, which brings us, flows right into question number two. Uh, question number two is how? And right, now we get to look at the positive part, the stuff where Jesus uh, makes up for it all. Uh, how is it better? In what way is the redemption he offers, in what way does the redemption he offers make up for those shortcomings? Well, for that, we need verses 11 through 14. Uh, and what you have here, what I want to show are two ways two ways, the redemption of Jesus is better. Uh, Let's look at 11 and 12. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal Redemption. So the first way his redemption is better is that his redemption is eternal. It's eternal. We have eternal redemption through Jesus Christ. It's not temporary, it's eternal. And that's what it says at verse 12. Here's, I think it's a key verse. Uh, the sacrifice of Jesus secures an eternal redemption for us. Uh, this goes back to his priesthood, right? That's what it's talking about. He passed through a greater and more perfect tent. So the high priest would pass through the temporary symbolic tent, but Jesus, and he's not going to elaborate on this, not here. He will later, but not here. But he simply tells us, Jesus passed through a greater and more perfect tent. Right? His, his is, we're going to learn it's an eternal tent. And so he he does that. His is not made with human hands. That's why it's eternal. If it's it's eternal, it's not prone to the failures of the old one. It's not prone to destruction. It's not prone to decay. It's not going to wear out. And then, on top of that, his redemption is also eternal. So not only did he pass through this unspecified better tent, uh, but he also passed through, uh, he also offered a once for all sacrifice. And that's stressed at the beginning of verse 12. Uh, Again, the old covenant sacrifices had to be repeated again and again and again. They had to be repeated, not the sacrifice of Jesus. I've I've said that several times. They had to be repeated. They had to be repeated. I keep repeating it because it's so important that his is once for all. It was once for all. And, And so that's the eternality of it. It doesn't have to be done again and again and again. Here's what that means for you and me you say does any of this apply to us oh it applies so much here's what it means it means that jesus has res- rescued us from sin's power to condemn sin cannot condemn us because of this if you've trusted in jesus you are not condemned you were before but you're not now. You're no longer condemned because of your sin. That's why Romans 8, right? We love Romans 8 so much. Uh, this is why Romans 8 starts the way it is, the way it does. There is therefore now no condemnation, Paul writes, for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is why. This, this passage we're looking at in Hebrews, this is why Romans 8.1 is true. And a lot of stuff Paul will describe in a different way in Romans, but, but they're, they're directly connected. We're not condemned before God because we have eternal redemption, not temporary redemption. Our redemption in Jesus has no expiration date. It lasts forever. and, And so the stain is removed. And so his redemption, the redemption we have in him is, is, is eternal. And that looks ahead to the eternal hope of heaven. And all these things we talk about, well, I keep saying we'll get there in chapter 11. We will, we will get there in chapter 11, because that's another thread he's going to pull together for us. Uh, those folks in chapter 11, those who lived by faith, they didn't look at the temporary, they looked ahead to that which is eternal. Same idea here, he's setting us up for it. So that's one way his is better, it's eternal. And then the second way it's better is that it is therefore effective. The redemption we have in Jesus is an effective redemption. Uh, To put it simply, it works. This one works. It actually works. And that's what he's going to describe for us. Again, he's set us up for it, but now he comes right out and says it in verses 13 and 14. For if the blood of goats and bulls, which is what was offered... and and sheep and other things. He's kind of just naming those two to kind of summarize all the animals. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, uh, if, if if those sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, how much more will that sacrifice purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Old covenant redemption was ineffective, right? That, we established that in the first 10 verses. It fell short. It fell short because of separation. It fell short because of all those limitations. And again, that doesn't mean it was bad, right? It had a very important place in salvation history. Very important. But we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, because it depended ultimately on our ability to obey. God set it up this way on purpose. He said, all right, here's a covenant where everything hinges on your ability to obey my law. Go. And nobody could. Nobody managed it. And so it was ultimately, by God's design, God made no mistake, but by God's design, it was ultimately ineffective. In contrast, the redemption under the new covenant, the redemption we have in Jesus, works. It's effective. The blood of Christ, that's what you get in verse 14. The blood of Christ is able to purify our conscience. And so he sets verse 14 over against verse 9. Uh, the, the old covenant could only deal with the purification of the flesh. That's how you should read that in verse 13, right? The animal sacrifices could only sanctify for the purification of the flesh. That is, it could only handle the outside stuff. The ritual stuff, that's the stuff the Pharisees focused on and the Sadducees during the first century in the, in the Gospels when you read about that. It, that's what those rituals focused on. They focused on ritual cleansing, but it didn't deal with the insta, inside. The blood of Jesus does, though. The blood of Jesus takes care of the inside. The old covenant couldn't, verse 9, but verse 14 says the, the new covenant can. The blood of Jesus can. His redemption is able to purify our consciences. Here's what that means. It means that Jesus rescues us from the power of sin to trap us. His power, his redemption rescues us from the power of sin to trap us in its web. Uh, verse 14, and you'll get, this, you'll get these last bits I want to say here come in the last part of verse 14. Look at verse 14. His blood purifies our conscience from dead works. He purifies us from dead works. Jesus frees us from the death trap of disobedience. Sin can't keep us there anymore. And and there's a whole bunch of stuff we could talk about about how that works hebrews isn't going to go into it how does it work we've got to cooperate with the holy spirit we've got to submit our will to him we've got to be in community so many verses tell us to help each other in this fight against sin so it's not something we you know it's 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 like any war you dare not do it on your own it's you need helpers in it we need to, to cooperate with it but fundamentally what it's telling us here is that jesus is the rescuer He's the one who rescues us from the power of sin to destroy our lives. He sets us free. When we talk about how his, his work is effective, it's effective to break that power. The fact that we even want to obey him is such a huge win, It's such a, a move in the right direction. And, and, and that's part of what his power does. He frees our consciences. He purifies our consciences from dead works. He sets us free from that trap. And then there's another side of it here. Along with that, Christ's redemption also sets us free to serve the Lord. Right, And that's the very last part of verse 14. His blood purifies our conscience so that we can serve the living God. And so there's the negative part, purified from dead works. And then there's the positive part. Purified to serve the living God. Purified from, purified to. And so we're purified to serve. Uh, And and here's how that works. Jesus removes the corruption. He removes the stain. He puts in us instead a new heart, right? I'll give them a new heart, a heart of of flesh, no longer a heart heart of stone, Ezekiel 35. And now that he's done that, now we're free. Again, this is freedom. We are free now to love and to serve. We're free to love and serve our God. And it reminds me of the great commandment. Jesus says, you know, the great commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. We can't do that in our own power. We can't do that when we're still trapped in the, in the, uh, the, the mesh of sin. But when he sets us free, we can. We can do that now. And so it's effective. His redemption is eternal, and his redemption is effective. Few months ago, it might even been a year ago, I was uh, reading a testimony. It was actually the back page testimony of Christianity Today. They, they've gotten in the habit of running um, testimonials in their issues, and, and this was a really good one. I wanted to close and, and share this testimony with you. Uh, it was uh, written by a woman named uh, Sharon Dutra. She wrote her own testimony. She's probably a little older than me. I look like I think she was probably in her early 60s, maybe. Uh, here's Sharon's testimony. Sharon grew up in a, a broken home. Very rough upbringing. Uh, she was abandoned by her mother when she was five, never saw her again. Uh, her father was an alcoholic, and he did have custody of her, but he couldn't handle it. And eventually he he relinquished custody of, of Sharon to the state while she was still a little girl. And so she spent the rest of her childhood in uh, different institutions and foster care facilities. That was what what how she spent her childhood. Uh, she wrote that she started using drugs when she was 13, she started to use uh, pretty hard drugs, uh, and that began a pattern that lasted all through her teen years, where she would run away. So she would run away from the different places where she was placed. Uh, she would run away. She would get into uh, lots of trouble. Uh, eventually, they would catch her. They would arrest her. They would see she was a juvenile, and they would put her back in another facility or another foster care or some situation like that. And repeat and that was her whole adolescence just going through that cycle uh, when she became an adult she was out on her own now uh, her drug use intensified she actually got married to a, another drug user and the two of them became horribly enmeshed as she described it Uh, she was homeless for long stretches during this period. This was all through her 20s. She was homeless. Sometimes she would prostitute herself to to be able to pay for the drugs that she was craving. She said she nearly died four times from overdoses, and she attempted uh, attempted suicide uh, several other times as well. And so by the time she was 29, 29 29-year-old woman, Sharon had been arrested 13 times. She'd been arrested 13 times. And during that 13th time in prison, somebody gave her a book to read. And it was actually a biography or an autobiography. It was written by um, Al Capone's chauffeur. So Al Capone, the gangster, had a a chauffeur who wrote a book. The book was called Devil Driver. Devil Driver. And uh, in the book, this uh, chauffeur for Al Capone talked about some of the awful things he did and Capone did and he did and working for Capone, all those years, terrible things. But then apparently this man became a believer al capone's chauffeur converted to became a born-again christian came to know jesus completely jesus changed his life completely that's the book sharon was reading while she was in prison here's how she describes her interaction with the book she says at that time i wasn't even looking for god all i knew was i wanted to die my whole life had been an unbroken stretch of misery and the pain was unbearable after finishing the book i realized god was exactly who i needed I got on my knees and cried out to him for over an hour, weeping for all the wrongs I'd done. When I got up off the cell floor, I was a brand new person, she says. And she was. She was. The Lord completely turned her life around. Uh, she was actually in isolation. There was some kind of a lockdown, she described, uh, for several weeks, and she, so she was in isolation when she read the book. But a few weeks later, the lockdown was lifted, and she went back into the general prison population right away. First thing she did was go find where the church service was. She got involved in the the church there in the prison. Uh, The chaplain, she befriended the chaplain. He befriended her, and he began to disciple her, teach her about Jesus. Uh, Not right away, but after a little while, she started to do ministry. She, She started to help out with leading worship. She started to lead Bible studies right there in prison. Eventually, her, her sentence was up. She was released, and uh, she was worried. As some of you know about prison ministries, you know recidivism is a hard issue, and she was worried. She was worried whether she'd be able to, to hold fast to her faith now that she was out with her freedom. Uh, but she very wisely got involved with some other believers. She started going to a church. Uh, she went back to, to school, got her degree. She became a nurse. Uh, she, in, the, in the end, she married the son of a police officer, she married a cop's son. Uh, the two of them ended up, after a few years, they uh, i been kind of telescoping all of this, but she, you know, she took time to grow in her faith. But eventually they, they started a ministry, and it still goes today, uh, a ministry that focuses on women, women and girls facing the same kinds of problems Sharon did all those years before. Here's how she finished her testimony. She writes, after so many years on the run, from home, from authority, from life itself, I praise God for giving rest to my weary soul no life is too broken for God to heal. I am living proof. The redemption of Jesus really is better. It really is better. I know it's a theological passage, but this is what it comes down to. If you take away one thing from this passage this morning, the redemption of Jesus is better. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper in just a moment. Before we do that, though, I I, am, uh, I, I, just, I want to say a few words to anyone here who's, who's never given your life to Jesus. I don't know if anybody's watching or listening right now, but if there is anyone, I need to tell you, you are missing out. If you have not <clears throat> excuse me, surrendered your life to Jesus, you're missing out. That's the point of this text and, and this whole book. Jesus is worth it. Jesus is worth any sacrifice. He offers us so much, starting with what we've talked about today. Starting with our rescue from the power of sin. And so if you've never accepted Christ, I encourage you to do so. This is too good, It's too good, too good to miss for even one day more. Come talk to me afterwards or talk to the person who brought you here, but uh, don't, don't put it off. This is too good uh, to all the rest of us, uh, all the good stuff that we have comes from him. Every good gift comes from above. All the good gifts are from him. That includes the physical blessings, to be sure, but don't forget the spiritual ones, which Hebrews tends to focus on so much. The forgiveness, the hope, the freedom, the joy, the peace, the rest. We have access to these things because of this, because Jesus died for us on the cross. And that's what we're going to remember as we come now to his table. Uh, The bread reminds us that his body was broken for us. Jesus, he wasn't a ghost, it wasn't a, a, a... ghostly, ephemeral, spiritual sort of a thing. Uh, His body, Jesus, God became a man. Jesus of Nazareth gave his body to be broken uh, in our place. And then the cup reminds us of his blood. Back to 726, his holy, innocent, perfect, sinless blood. Uh, We are made whole because of his perfection. That's what the the cup reminds us of. So would you please pray with me, and then uh, we'll share the table together. Lord, we thank you so much for uh, just the privilege that it is to even spend time in this text. Boy, don't let us ever let our hands be seared by holy things. You are so good to us, God, and we thank you for, ex- for exposing us this morning in this passage to this truth. Uh, Lord, I pray for those of us who know you already, whether we've walked with you for a few days or... A few decades or many decades. Uh, we just thank you for our salvation in Jesus. Help us to grow ever more in our love for you, our affection for you, and our appreciation for all that you've done. Please forgive us for our sins, Lord. Even, uh, even as, as, as saints now, we still, uh, our feet get dirty, as it were, uh, walking upon this earth until you call us home. And so I pray that you would uh, show us any unconfessed sin, that we might turn it over to you and be cleansed and come to your table holy and pure. And Lord, I do pray for any who hear these words who do not know you. Lord, would you please, in the end, my, uh, my skill is so feeble it, doesn't, it has no hope, but your Holy Spirit, your Holy Spirit can. And I pray that you would open the hearts of any who don't trust in you now to, to care to do so, to want to do so. Draw them to yourself. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.